Good morning. Well, I'm about to begin my third year as college ministry director, and there are a lot of things I love about college ministry. I found that college students, for the most part, are, are easy to please. Um, and, and I say this in a good way, very easy to please. Like whenever you uh, mention, hey, you want to meet up for coffee? Yeah, I love coffee, right? College students love to meet up for coffee because it's fun. It's good. If you ever go out to lunch, that's like an added bonus. Um, love meeting out for lunch. And dinner, occasionally when you have dinner at your house, that's off the charts. Um, several of you make homemade uh, baked goods for Sunday night college connection that we have over here. <clears throat> and it's just amazing the power that a homemade brownie has in the life of a college student. <laughs> when they walk in and they're like, for me? <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. I absolutely love that part of college ministry. Before I came to Alliance, however, I was working uh, seven years as a program director at a Christian camp TVR uh, down in Avery County. Now, I love camp ministry. It's in my blood. I, I just absolutely love it. But it's a lot different than, than college ministry. For the most part, as far as I'm ever aware, I don't think anybody ever came to camp for coffee and brownies, though they have good coffee and brownies at TVR. But people usually come to camp to enjoy themselves, to get away, to relax, and to do stuff they don't typically do at their homes, like play crazy games. Um, I discovered over my time at TVR that there's two types of people in the world, people that like games, people that don't like games. And I like coffee and brownies. I'll just say that. So I'm in the right spot right now. Um, but no, I, I, I sifted through about a billion games as a college or as, a, as the program director there. And um, you know, we come across some good games, and we'd throw them into the uh, the rotation, and we'd, we'd play them a few years. Occasionally, we'd uh, I'd, I'd find a game on the internet, and we'd play it, and we'd never play it again. <laughs> I'd send an apology letter to the youth pastors, and. Sorry, we'll never do that one again. But occasionally we'd come across a game, and, and I almost hesitate to say this, but sometimes a game that we'd come across was profound, and it would teach us a, a deep lesson about our human nature. And one of my favorite games was this. Uh, it, it ended up being my favorite game of all time. This is how it would work. We'd take about 20 students up to the ball field and have them gather, uh, link hands in a circle. And I'd handpick about three unlucky uh, students and have them go on the outside of the circle. And I'd have the 17 grab hands again. And I would, this was, I would be very clear in how I would set up the instructions. I would give one, one instruction and then step out of the way. I'd, I'd look to the three kids and I'd say, you have one goal. Get in. Go. Just get in the circle. And then I'd step away. And invariably, the 17 left, they would grab hands and they would become a unified force to keep those three desperate souls out of that circle, right? They would dip, uh, dip duck, and dive and, and claw and spit and kick and try to keep everybody out. And they're like trying to jump over them and slide through holes. Um, anyway, crazy. Eventually, they got in. They'd crawl through a leg. And about five, 10 minutes later, depending on how aggressive they were, it was my favorite part. I'd always come back and I would uh, say, what took you guys so long? You had one goal. <laughs> like, wait a minute. And, and it would kind of, it would dawn on them. I'm like, it, it should have taken you three seconds to get in the circle, right? And it dawned on them that I never said anything about keeping them out. They filled in the blanks <laughs> because we naturally do this. We keep people out. I just said, get in the circle. They should have just said, okay, come on in. <laughs> but instead they linked up as one force and kept those three desperate souls out of the circle. We do this as humans. We've come to a, a, a dangerous place in our study on gospel-centered community. This has been a hopefully challenging and uh, encouraging series on life together. 
Hopefully you've learned a lot of good tools that would make us a better, stronger community. But here's the danger. We focused a lot on us and we can easily clench hands and keep people out and forget our purpose. John Stott has said that there's always been a strong tendency for Christians to withdraw into a kind of closed evangelic monastic community. If we're not careful, we can clench hands and harden our hearts and keep out a lost and dying world. Now this, is, uh, this kind of community is an offense to the gospel. And here's where the analogy breaks down. If this, is, if this defines us, if we gather here to celebrate our own moral achievements and our religious accomplishments, there's not a soul in the world that will try to claw their way into our group. It won't happen. We'll focus on us and, and people will stay very far away from us. The type of gospel-centered community that we've been describing this summer, however, is indescribably beautiful. It's irresistible. There's a grace and there's, there's something happens here that, that magnetizes people to us. In fact, I want to argue from scripture this morning that true gospel-centered community is by nature evangelistic. It doesn't end on us, but it ends with the world. Building gospel-centered community does not benefit simply us. It benefits the world. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And we're going to be in John 17. So if you have your, your Bible, turn to John 17. If not, I'll have the words on the screen. We're going to be considering verses 20 to 23 this morning. But let me put them in context. The chapter of John 17 gives us a window into one of the most spectacular conversations in the history of our universe. On the eve of Jesus' death, he cries out to the Father, and he prays for us. Here's the outline of the prayer. First five verses, he prays for himself and asks that God would be glorified in him and, about, and what he is about to do. Verses six through 19, he turns his attention to the disciples, this band of brothers that has been walking with him for three years. And he says, God, strengthen them. Encourage them, unite them. And then shockingly, in verse 20, he turns his attention to, to us. To us. People that would believe on account of the apostles' words, Christians throughout the ages. And so th this morning, what we're gonna look into is a conversation between God and God about us. God speaking to God about us. It's profound. And so this morning, as we approach this text, let us do so with great humility and great anticipation. Read it with me, John 17, 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Amen. Immediately after this prayer, Jesus will get up, walk across the, the Kidron Valley and meet Judas with swords and torches and he will willingly walk to his death. This is the context of the prayer. 
as if it needed any more weight than what we just read. Um, This is Jesus' final plea to God the Father before he goes to the cross. This is his last words and last statements, last prayer, and he's thinking about us in those moments. So what does he pray for? What does he think? As he scans the church for the next 2,000 years and thinking of all these believers, what does he pray for? Now, don't you think that Jesus would have prayed for something like um, supernatural Christians? Like, God, rise up generation after generation of people that will proclaim the faith and die for the faith and, and do miraculous works. Don't you think he would have prayed for uh, supernatural faith? You know, he, he mentions that the world would come to know him. If he's very interested in the world coming to know who he is, wouldn't he have prayed that we would discover watertight arguments for his existence? There's a lot of things Jesus could have prayed for, and yet in these final waning hours of his life, he prays that we would be unified. He prays that you and I would love each other and get along. That's his last request. And then he goes to die. This morning, I want to discover why unity is so important and why Jesus spends his last moments praying that we would be unified. He gives us in the text our, the basis of our unity and the result of what will happen when we are unified. This will form the outline. The basis of Christian unity and then the result of our unity. Let's consider the basis of our unity. The unity that he prays for you and I, what he asks for us is not natural. It's not just that we get along. It's something far deeper. It's a supernatural unity. And he grounds this unity in the very love of God, in the very person of God. This is profound. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus, he says, I ask that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Think of that. Jesus wants us to be one and unified like God is one and unified. Our love should look like the love that God the Father has with God the Son. Let that sink in. Our love is a picture of God's love. The way that you and I interact with each other looks like what God's love looks like. When we speak of God's love, though, let me, let me take a step back and show you really how profound and brilliant this is. When we speak of God's love, we typically think of God and us, right? God loving the world, God loving us. He comes to save us. And that's where we think of God's love. And that's true. That is a very profound characteristic of God's love. But God's love is eternal. And we are not. And so the question remains, who did God love before God loved us? God loved God, to put it simply. Now, this is not some sort of a a narcissistic love where a divine being looks at himself in a cosmic mirror and admires his attributes. This is not what I'm talking, this is not what the scripture speaks of when it speaks of God loving God. The doctrine of the Trinity gives us a father, the son, and the spirit united in an unbroken and perfect and spotless love for eternity. The father, the son, and the spirit have been perfectly content with one another for all of history, and they will continue to be so. Let that sink in. That love that exists between the members of the Trinity, as Jesus is reflecting on this love between Father, Son, and Spirit, and now he considers the church, and he says, that's the kind of love I want for my church. What we have, the the love that we have, I want them to have. That they may be one just as we are one. Now, who in here can live up to that? 
Can we just look at that and say, okay, that's our instruction, let's go. <laughs> let's start loving like that. We can't. We cannot love like that. The only way for this love to occur in our midst is for us to be caught up in that love. Or, or to say it differently, that love must invade us and, and dwell among us. And this is exactly what Christ prays for in the next verse. Verse 22, he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. There's only one way to achieve this type of love. It's for Christ to dwell among us. Christ in us is the Father, is in the Son. This is astounding. The only way for us to achieve this type of love is for God to dwell among us. There is no other way. This is essentially, maybe a prayer that you are familiar with is Ephesians chapter three, as Paul prays for the Ephesian church. Some of the same themes are, are here, and I think it's appropriate to highlight this prayer because Paul essentially prays the same thing, slightly different wording for the Ephesian church. Read it with me, Ephesians three seventeen to 19. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to know the love of Christ that you can't even know so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Christian unity. Our love looks like that of God, but more so that love actually dwells here. Now, I realize this is heavy doctrine. We've been up in the clouds. We're, we're up here, and we need this to gird our love and to understand why we love and the, to understand the basis of our Christian love, but it's meant to come down on the ground. How does this love look here? How does this love look between you and I and each other? I want to look at two snapshots of the life of Christ and understand um, how Jesus relates to the Father, and I, and I think as we understand that type of love in these two brief snapshots of his life, we can understand how we're supposed to love, and we can look at how our community is gonna act. Okay, so look at me too, if you will. First, the baptism of Jesus. This is a very interesting moment. You remember what happens as Christ comes out of the Jordan River? The, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father speaks, behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father gives the son significance. I'm pleased with him. He gives the son significance. This is what will lead, Jesus is soon led to the, the wilderness and this is what will guide him for 40 days as Satan pesters him saying, do, be big, be significant, be somebody. I know you can do it, I've seen you. Turn this rock into bread, I know you can do it. Show the world your greatness, you can rule, you can have everything, be significant, be significant. And Jesus says, I am significant. I don't, why would I need to do that? Why do I have to attain some sort of significance? Did you not hear what the father just said? I am well pleased in my son. Jesus is significant because this is the type of love that exists in the Trinity that gives significance. They do not have to fight for it. This does not happen in our world. Our world claws for significance and we attach ourselves to celebrities and we attach ourselves to the next big thing because we want to be significant. But in the church, if the love of God dwells among us, 
We won't need that. We will be significant. It's Jesus Christ, is, or the Father is pleased with us because Christ dwells here. And that's all we need. This will dynamically change the way that we relate to each other and the world will take notice. Second snapshot, the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember as Jesus, the Son of God, bows in the garden and he prays before the Father three times. He asks for another way, but how did he close every prayer? Not what I will, but, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. The love between God the Son and God the Father is submissive. The Son has existed for eternity as the Son. This means that he is eternally submitted. Jesus has never once, the, the Son of God has never once said, you know, if I could just take the reins, I've got some really great ideas, if I could just take over for a little bit, he is eternally submitted. And as the son of God, he is 100% God and he shares all the attributes of the father and yet he submits eternally and he's fine with it. He's happy, he's content. This is something our world does not know. We try to use power to manipulate each other and to claw and get ourselves ahead and to climb the ladder. But guess what? If the love of the Trinity exists here, that will not occur. If it dwells among us, this will change the way that we relate to each other. We will submit to each other, as Ephesians 5 said. Submit to one another. We'll submit to each other, and the world will take notice. It's the type of contentment that the world craves. Let me state again. Our love is rooted in the very love of God. We extend the same love to other people that was extended to us. This was Christ's prayer for us. This is the basis of our unity, Christ's love dwelling here. But his prayer doesn't stop there. In fact, I think the point of his prayer is to show what happens when we love like that. A dying world will take notice. So let's turn to the results of our Christian unity. The result of Christian unity. Read verse 21 with me again. Jesus asked that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me and Love them even as you loved me. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is the goal of everything we've talked about this summer. This is the goal of life together. So that the world will know. We strive for unity because the world is watching. This is why. This is our most powerful evangelic appeal evangelistic appeal. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest theologians and apologetic minds of the 20th century has said this, love is the final apologetic. Now Francis Schaeffer was brilliant and he could argue with anybody and, and, and prove that God is who he says he is and yet he says at the end of the day, love is the final apologetic. It is the most convincing thing that we have. I don't mean to downplay arguments and evangelism strategies one bit, they have their place. And I bet many of you were, were, were influenced by some very powerful arguments of the faith. But the most powerful appeal that we have is love. Genuine Christian unity 
based in the, in the love of God. This is why life together is important and critical. When we love each other with the very love of God and when Christ dwells in our community, evangelism will flow out naturally. Think of it. Let's think of the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit again. This is an overflowing love. We said earlier that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been perfectly content. Why did he create then? Did he need us? No. His love overflowed to us. That's the kind of love that exists in the Trinity. When he created us, he says, let your love overflow to the ends of the earth. Create and multiply and overflow. God's love is an overflowing love. When we sinned and rebelled and rejected him, God sent Jesus to come get us. He sends Jesus, he, he comes and gets us. The love of the Trinity is a reaching love. And so if that love exists here, we will reach and we will go and we will overflow. That will characterize our community if we truly are a gospel-centered community. So let me ask you, is our love overflowing? Are we reaching out? Are we showing people the love that exists here and, and inviting them into this community? Or are we clenching our hands and saying, we like it just how we have it? Because if we have Christ in our midst, we will reach and we will actively be trying to reconcile our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors back to God. I wanna close the, the message with just a brief framework of this type of relational and community evangelism. This has been very helpful for me and I wanna throw it out there for you. Um, Tim Keller has uh, written about this in his book, Center Church. It's been influential in my life and I know over the past year, it's, it's really transformed the way I interact with people. And so I wanna share his outline. It would be rare for us, and I think a lot of us have been trained that evangelism is sitting down with somebody and in one sitting, we, we, we go through everything, the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, um, Revelation, and we explain our testimony and we sing just as I am at the end and they come to Christ. That's, that's evangelism for most of us and that kind of intimidates us. Now, I know some of you are really good at this and you're trained and you're, you, you know what they're gonna say and you know how to, you know how to act back when they say this, you say this, you know? And when, that intimidates a lot of us. And if that's our view of evangelism, it's like, well, I'm not good at evangelism. I'm gonna step back here until I can learn that. But that's not it, that's not it. I think this four steps, I think, will, will hopefully get us actively moving and get us to that point. And so go through these with me, if you will. First, it's very important just to share your faith informally. Just get it out there. Get it out. I'm, I'm a Christian. You don't have to say it like that, like, uh, by the way, uh, I'm a Christian. You don't have to get it out there like that, but start somewhere very informally. Maybe mention something you heard at church. Or you know when they say that their, their mom is struggling with cancer, come back to them a week later and say, how's your mom? I've been praying. Let them know that you are a Christian. Get it out. We can't keep it hidden. You have to let people know that you believe in Jesus Christ. This doesn't require much courage. Just get it out there and just, you know, be honest. I'm struggling with this, but let me tell you, this verse really impacted me. What do you mean, verse from the Bible? Anyway, get it out there informally. Second, after that, this is, I think if you do this first step a lot, you will begin to notice that you're, you're, you're developing a lot of good relationships with people. Secondly, share your faith formally. This requires a bit more courage and a bit of planning but, but it's something we can do. Um, maybe buy a friend a Christian book that has meant a lot to you. 
Send them a link to a podcast that really transformed you. Or send them a link to a video. Or just, you know, maybe say something like this. You know, I've known you for three years and I don't think I've ever told you my story. I've had some crazy stuff happen and I'd love just to tell you that. Is that cool? Who's gonna say no to that? Just get out there, share a time formally where you, where you can share your faith. And this is my favorite. Just simply ask someone to read the Bible with you. Just say, can I read the Bible with you? You don't have to be an expert theologian to read through John with somebody else. And I imagine as you do, you will grow in your own faith. Expose the word of God to people formally. Now third, invite, some, invite people that you're, you're in relationships with to some form of Christian community. Now remember, this is our strongest appeal, Christian community. And I think a lot of times, don't we just keep people away? It's like, oh, you, don't, you won't like church. You won't like what? Why? Let them see Christian love. Let them see you interacting with other Christians and let them see that satisfaction and submission and perfect love that exists between the Trinity. Maybe it's a formal meeting. Maybe you bring them to church or Bible study or life group or college connection. One of my best friends now is sitting in this room right now because somebody brought him to college connection. And this is incredible. Bring them to some form of formal Christian gathering. And maybe it doesn't even have to be formal. Maybe a couple of your friends get together for dinner and you just have another neighbor over for dinner and just show them Christian love. Expose them to Christian love. And finally, the fourth step, share your faith. There eventually comes a time when you do get it out there and, and you tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and how that changed your life and how it can change your life too and invite them. I think if you go through this, I think that final step won't be nearly as intimidating to you. Our love is a reaching love. Don't, don't let the fear of getting out and spreading the gospel stop you from reaching. If God dwells here, we will go and we will talk and we will have conversations and people will notice the love here and they will ask us, what's going on? I need that. We need each other in this journey. We, we can't do it alone. I can't imagine anything better than to know that you're gonna have that conversation at, at lunch and you have a brother or sister praying for you during lunch at that time. Hey, I get to share my testimony with somebody. Would you pray? Let's do this together. There's a reason that Jesus sends out the 72, two by two. You go out together. This is not an individual pursuit. Go in groups. Get the word out there. Pray for each other. Celebrate. Let your life groups just always have a list of people you're praying for and celebrating with. I can, I can think of no more exciting mission I'd rather be a part of. <clears throat> Earlier this week, Doug sent out a prayer request email and he asked for stories of how you are sharing your faith. And uh, I got a lot of emails this week and I'm very, very excited and just very encouraged by what is happening in our church. I feel like we are spreading the love of Christ and that is so encouraging. And I wanna encourage you, it's happening. Let's join that. Let's join this culture of evangelism and, and go. Um, the common thread in all of these stories was some sort of personal and loving touch. Some of you opened up your homes and had dinner with, a, with an intentional conversation about religion after. Some of you, uh, I know, will buy lunch for your students and explain the gospel to them and, and invite them to respond. One of my favorites, this lady, um, one of you have, has 
written a little note about your faith and put it on a breakfast tray and served it to your father-in-law every day. And over time, these little notes, this personal little touch has absolutely transformed the father-in-law and he came to know Christ. This is incredible. I'm just excited about this and I, I want us to catch this vision of spreading the faith and of going. It's beautiful. This, what I'm talking about here is the goal of everything we've talked about this summer. We focused a lot on us. It's, it's so we can benefit the world. As we close this series, Life Together, I realize there's probably some people in this room that do not know Christ. We don't want to assume that everyone in here knows Jesus and is part of the family of God. And I want to right now tell you very clearly and boldly, be reconciled to God. I hope these words of Christ in John 17 have pierced your soul and you've seen Jesus' vision for the church that we love each other and we get along and that he dwells here. And I hope that is irresistible to you. I hope he is drawing you in. I wanna give you three opportunities to be reconciled this morning. Right now, confess in your heart and believe that Jesus is the son of God and that Jesus loves us deeply and he dwells here. Believe. In just a moment, we are gonna celebrate a family meal called communion, and this is a very tangible and visible way um, that we remember the gospel. And as the bread and the juice are being passed around, again, I want to invite you, believe, belong, and partake. And join us this morning for the first time, believe in Christ. And finally, maybe some of you have some questions. Maybe you're not gonna do this without talking to somebody. We have a prayer response team that comes up every morning at the end of our services and they stand here and they pray for our members. We want you to come and talk to them and, and say, what is this about? And allow them to explain it to you. I can think of no better way than to end this message or th this series. Be reconciled to God this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we reflect this morning on your great love. Yes, your great love for us, it has melted our hearts and it has changed who we are completely. But even deeper, Lord, we reflect on your love. The Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father, eternally unbroken, we reflect on that, God and we worship you. We realize we cannot understand quite how that works. It's a mystery of our faith, but Lord, it is, you, you reveal yourself that way in the scriptures, and so we worship you as such. Pray that as we reflect on that love and realize that it dwells among us and that it is here, that it would break our hearts and it would change how we interact with other people. Would you be very real and present this morning in our community? I pray that we would comprehend together the height and depth and length and width, breadth of your great love for us. And that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge and that we would this morning be filled with the fullness of God. Be with us this morning. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.